Hello. Look at this. It's really happening. Um, thank you for coming out on a rainy Saturday morning, everybody. It's kind of exciting to look around and see all these like fellow secret Mansonites or not so secret ones. I feel like we should all start like a blood pack after this or something. Um, so pretty much this is the first one of these sessions we've done. So I'm not 100% sure how it's going to work or how it's going to go. So this is kind of our test audience. But pretty much we've kept it super loose. Penn and I have just been kind of chatting about some stuff around Charles Manson and how he kind of came to be so infamous and his continuing appeal. But I really want it to be kind of like a group chat. So if you want to jump in at any point, I don't know, like just jump in. I don't think people need to put their hands up or anything. They do because we've got to give them the mic. Okay, we'll just, <laughs> we might have some, um, we have some like open-ended question sections to, you know, get things going. So, yeah, feel really free to say anything because this is very much, it's not just a talk, it's a chat. Um, I feel like we should say there are, if anyone has a young child in the background, we are going to probably talk about some gruesome stuff. So, just PSA. <laughs> um, so, when we originally were going to do this talk, Penn and I had a coffee and we were really thinking about like, oh, okay, well, we can talk about the sort of rise of Charles Manson, his kind of uh, relationship with culture in the 60s, and then also, you know, this enduring appeal and what he means today. But we wanted to just take a minute to, I suppose, go off track a little bit. When Donald Trump was announced president-elect this week, the first text message I got was actually from Jesse French. Nice. And it was just like, uh, Helter Skelter? <laughs> like, do we need to go and find that hole in the desert and get ready for the race war? So I thought it was pretty interesting that, you know, what, 47 years later, he is still so entwined with the biggest issue of today. And before I came here, I actually was, I just like did a quick Twitter search to see like what people talk about, you know, on Twitter in relation to Charles Manson. And I thought there would be a lot of Trump stuff because it seems like a pretty easy comparison. It was almost entirely, and a lot of comparisons to Hillary Clinton. And it was all this idea of, you know, we talk about how Charles Manson kind of galvanized this disaffected youth, this sense of fear, the sense of loss, this he cherry-picked things that people cared about or felt dissatisfied about, and he created this army of young people. And everyone was like, that's what Hillary's doing today. Yeah. Um, I'll add here, there's a great article in The Guardian. I don't know if, Wendy, you're going to put all these links in the Facebook group. Maybe. <laughs> um, put that, write that down. Um, there's a great article in The Guardian recently by an awesome chick called Hadley Freeman, um, talking about exactly this, and she was talking about Manson's, well, she says, his genius lay in exploiting the burgeoning feeling at the time that there needed to be a new way of doing things, that the old elites should be overthrown, that the mainstream media and police were in the pocket of the establishment, and that a new generation had been sold out by a system that was supposed to help them. These sentiments were expressed by the counterculture's leading lights at the time, but they are so common today that it's hard to find a major news story at the moment that they're not rooted in. Um, when people seek saviours, they generally find false prophets. Manson's followers had the terrible luck to fall into the path of a genuine psychopath. But I think there are so many parallels when put that way. Um, anyway. It's kind of scary. I know, and especially we were chatting about this before when we had a coffee. There is this sense that, you know, so much in the media today 
I mean, you know, this week has been focusing on this idea that the mainstream media is actually so disconnected to what people think and what people feel and what people are really afraid of. And the reality is moving right back to 1969, well, even before that, to the beginning of the 60s, this is what started this disconnect between youth culture and the mainstream media in the 60s. It's that, you know, kids were terrified, kids were frightened, kids felt they their parents didn't understand them, they didn't understand this, you know new world that was being created and all the stuff was churning inside them and then they were going to the movies and watching Doris Day movies and they didn't see themselves projected and you know on the screen in music on tv on the radio so it created this sense of you know fear and paranoia and I mean it's what's happening today but the thing is instead of galvanizing 19 year olds to move away from their hometown we've seen this thing where it's kind of galvanized our parents and all their secret hidden fears so Happy Saturday, guys. <laughs> Great start to the weekend. But maybe we should move... I should say, um, in relation to the election, a BuzzFeed um, journalist um, actually wrote to Charles Manson. And I don't know what the motivation of the journalist was. Maybe they were thinking along these lines. Maybe they weren't. But Charles Manson wrote back... Um, and it's, I tried to transcribe the letter this morning to, so I could understand it. Um, but the part of it that, I mean, you can read a lot into it, um, but the part of it that makes me think he's kind of, um, I don't know, thinking through it, is he says, um, uh, he says, think to find out who you think your leader may be. The USA of America is a bad ball game. World lies. I don't know what that means. But I like the idea that he's perhaps seeing a parallel um, or an opportunity for someone like him in the present as he might have seen it in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, even in that letter, also credit to BuzzFeed that you should look up that letter if you can find it. It's pretty insane he did all these crazy illustrations through it it's sort of beautiful and I was like people give shit to BuzzFeed but that is like a grade BuzzFeed like news journalism <laughs> like I will yeah just being like ah how can we make this clickbait but also amazing um I will click on that until I die but I mean the sense that he did kind of you never really know if he does know what's going on or not. And I mean, that's something that we're still debating today, this idea, was he a sociopath? Did he really think he was... I mean, he didn't even think he was the second coming, coming of God. In one of the trials, he said, I invented God. Imagine having that confidence. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about that next time, you know, you need to make a speech or something. Um, but also... The, this kind of constant question about how much he really knew what was going on and how conscious he was. So maybe we can travel back in time to, you know, when did he get out of jail and kind of... 67. 67. And I mean, 67, that was the summer of love. That's when it really... I think we think of it as this really ideal time, but it was interesting. I was watching this documentary about Hate ashbury this morning, actually, and they were saying, we have this really dreamy idea of, like, you know, 1967, all these hippies were coming to town. It was so amazing. But, I mean, long before Charles Manson got to San Francisco in 1967, things had well and truly curdled. Uh, the drug culture had kind of changed from LSD and pot to speed and heroin, and they'd also been attracting these 
all these kind of false prophets and these people who had worked out that they had all these young, vulnerable people that they could come and kind of sell these lies to. Can I intervene? I feel like I, in this conversation, can be the advocate for Satanism. Um, I am obsessed with Satanism and I think it's worth noting that at that time, Satanism was in the public consciousness. It was part of the counterculture in a, in a way that wasn't... I mean, they were freaky, but they were also hanging out with celebrities and, you know... Um, yes, it was pre the 70s Satanic Panic. Um, I feel like any parallels that we can dry, try and draw between now and then, and if we can draw them, show us that Satanism is and was kind of potentially super relevant and really useful as a set of beliefs at that time. Um, it was, I mean, so we're talking about, you know, it started with Crowley and then Anton LaVey kind of came up and became a little kind of prophet of Crowley's. Um, and this that Satanism was and still is kind of all about man as a god and the idea that you have to reject a dichotomy, this dichotomy between good and evil, people who um, try to suppress the evil side of themselves are ignoring half of their humanity. So to be a Satanist is to explore and accept impulses that are bad and also the godly kind of um, side of yourself um, and sort of reconcile that with life, you know, um, it's very grounded in, in the now uh, and it thinks of human beings as just another animal and is therefore very ecological in its view. Um, and I think it was a really kind of holistic, useful way of thinking about the world. Um, the, the interesting thing is that the same things that made Satanism thrive and made it appealing to people at that time were the things that made Manson appealing. So they're, 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 they're connected. And people think that Manson was a Satanist. He wasn't really. Manson just capitalised, I think, on this need for a logic. And the logic he learned about in prison what drew on Satanism and on Scientology. Um, and I don't like to say that he's a Satanist because I think the Satanists are onto something. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really interested in... Um, the two religions that he drew on when he was in prison from 61 to 67. He, in interviews, has said that he was very interested in the process church of the final judgment. Does anyone know about them? <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> and also Scientology. Those were the two things that he kind of studied up on and built his worldview around in order to gather followers. Um, if you're interested in the Process Church, you can find them today. They, <laughs> they started out um, as an offshoot of Scientology in, in London. Two disaffected Scientologists started it. Um, and, they, um, and, it, and it was a kind of offshoot of Satanism in that they believed in these kind of human-as-God levels of um, humanness that were both indulgent and bad and, like, transcendent and good and reconciling that. The, they... Um, they had one of the best magazines that was ever published in terms of graphic design. They released a magazine every week and they were distributed on street corners. It was called The Process. And you can look it up. It was um, There's a book out through Feral House called Propaganda, 
um, and the holy writ of the process church of the final judgment and it gathers together their three most famous and beautifully designed magazines um, and Scientology was the other thing that Manson drew on and I myself am obsessed with Scientology and I'm happy to sit and talk to anyone about it afterwards. Um, <laughs> um, but he did, he drew on these things in order, in an opportunistic way in order to control people. And so it was a kind of bastardization of both of those things. And I'm not defending Scientology, but it was a very useful way of, because it's all about control through communication it's a very, as we know, Hollywood religion and was perfect for its time. And I think he drew on it as a way of controlling himself and also others. Anyway, there's my religious context. Just sitting here now and listening to you talk, Penn, the Scientology, Satanist, charismatic leader, good talker, you're pretty primed to be like Manson 2.0 if you wanted to be. <laughs> I'm drawing a lot of parallels here. Well, I mean, why are we all obsessed with it? I don't know, this is going to be recorded. So this could be an issue, Jesse. <laughs> but I mean, I know when we were talking in that initial coffee and you said, I am so prime to in be inculcated. Yeah. Like, I want cults appeal to me. I'm obsessed with them. And I was like, yes, yes, why though? I would like us to examine why. Yeah. Um, we feel that. And I think it's it's also perhaps in the context of why those girls felt that. Because probably a lot of us here feel some fascination with or identify with the Manson girls in some way. Maybe because we feel like that could have been us. I don't know. Um, why, are you wanna, why are you so uh, suggestible? Well, I have always just been ready for any bandwagon that's going to roll by. <laughs> I am... Vegan, juice, raw, like <laughs> Justin Bieber, short cropped flares, like I'm ready for any of it. That's great for a career in fashion. Yeah. I'll be sold to and I will sell. Um, I, wonder um, I wonder whether maybe, I don't know for everyone else, but for me, like my cultural... Um, traditions have been so watered down since my family came to Australia and so my version of like the way that we gather and the way that we find meaning and what it is that creates you know what I care about is dissolved and so the idea of being like going to a cult and just being told what to care about is like a bit deeply appealing because <laughs> everything means nothing so you know that could be nice. Well, this is... Now I'm like Oprah, like, wandering around the audience. <laughs> you get a cut. Um, but I think that's also this thing about the loss of our generation with religion as well. And we don't have this, like, compass or this community or this thing to believe in. And, I mean, even when we first started talking about this, I was like, you can see parallels between this cult this cult, you know, rise that was in the 60s and 70s. And I joke about wellness and stuff, but we are obsessed with these lifestyles now. It is a cult. It doesn't have a leader, does it? Are there? Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow? Is there a perception that this is a cult? Yeah. Yeah. Even like the concept of a lifestyle is a bit of a... Like it's funny that this is a cult. Yeah. Like, <laughs> 
Well, does anyone else want to jump in and kind of talk about maybe from their personal point of view, maybe it's why you found Manson appealing, why you find cults appealing, why you find any of this stuff filling some huge empty void inside you? Here we go. I um, I find it really interesting that um, utopian ideas always end up being like hell. Um, my my grandparents were communists, and growing up, the idea of communism was always so idyllic. And it was only when I kind of came into primary school and kind of learned more about communism and, and how it all turns to shit and why it doesn't happen. And I think that cults end up being the same thing, and maybe all good things turn bad for humans. <laughs> like, we have a pattern of kind of doing this thing and, and why why can't we do these utopian things that kind of sound good but then always crumble? Um, yeah. It's a strange idea. Can I read you something? There was an article recently... What you've tapped into, Jess, is, is what I constantly think about, which is why is... You know, I have a natural suspicion of religion for the same reasons, yeah. right? Um, and the only religion that's ever appealed to me is Satanism because I feel as though it's immune to that kind of utopian decline because it's not utopian. It's realistic. It's real. Or as some of them would say, it's the eternal now. Like Manson or, or, or you in it ha have no status. Um, there was an interview that I... I implore you all to look up one amazing journalist from io9, now defunct, I think, RIP, but you can still access it, um, discovered that on the current day Church of State, Satan's website, there's a list of movies recommended by the Church of Satan. Um, and they emailed the current head of the church, who's not Anton LaVey anymore. He's a very thoughtful, philosophical man who um, has dialed back a lot of the um, kind of dramatic costuming that <laughs> that characterised Satanism, and in fact, John Waters criticised that. He was like, "You can't be a sat you, you can't have an impact in a cloak. No one is going to be afraid of you." <laughs> anyway, John Waters has a lot of um, fashion angles on it. Um, but the um, the the leader of the church um, is so thoughtful, and in the way he explores Satanism as a philosophy through this filmic, and because the films aren't all like Rosemary's Baby, they're like. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Pennies from Heaven starring Christopher Walken. Like all this stuff that you're like, what? What? How is that satanic? And this list actually reveals what Satanism is in its like kind of holistic form. And his summary of it, he says, Satanism is an atheist philosophy using Satan as a symbol of pride, liberty and individualism. Those of us, um, what? since the universe is indifferent to us, we Satanists choose to establish our own subjective hierarchy of values with ourselves as highest among them. Thus, atheism moves to what I call atheism, where we are each our own gods. We accept the full range of human emotions as healthy, from love to hate, noting both of those are uncommon extremes. How healthy is that? <laughs> like, the dude is onto it. Um, and they still have a sense of kind of self-regulation. It's not like a, like a seeking of like chaos and violence. It's like he says, Satanists employ ritual not as worship, but as a form of self-psychotherapy to rid ourselves of any emotions hindering our intelligently moderated pursuit of pleasures. This makes for an Epicurean lifestyle, indulgence, not compulsion, being a prime dictate. And it, please. 
just feel like the other thing, though, is where Manson was kind of trying to say that to... I, for me, the thing that stuck out in the podcast was how gendered it was. Like, the women were just fucked the whole way through. And the... Um, I think... I can't remember it's Mulcher's partner, who's like, why do the girls have to be naked? You know, about, like, when they're all, like, at the ranch. Oh, yeah. And um, that, to me, was, like... It's ex- that exact same thing where it's, like, dictating... To tell a woman how to be empowered is, I think, something that's super relevant still, where it's like, this is how you can be, you know, in charge. Talking about how, um, like, the rise of the pill and, like, just the whole, like, free love movement was about, like, essentially women just being accessible to fucking all the time. Like, it was like, yeah. Yeah, and just, like, a huge part of all of that uh, power struggle is, like, telling women how they can experience being their best self. I was listening to this um, podcast this morning. It was one of the interviews on, do you guys listen to Crybabies? Well, you should. It's my number one podcast, other than this one. Um, And they were chatting to a girl who grew up in a commune, and she was saying it was really interesting because her dad started it. But she was like, from the outside, it's like a girl becoming a teenager in this community. She was like, I just started thinking of it. It was like my dad's den. Like, it was his mates lived in our backyard, and they, like you know, search for freedom and expression and all these things, and the women just made spaghetti and cleaned up afterwards. <laughs> and, I mean, it is something that we just come back to, like, in all these ideas of wellness and, like, this new utopia, girls are still just clearing the dishes. Who that? <laughs> Kill all men. <laughs> Except you guys. Not a solution. <laughs> um, but this kind of brings me back to the other thing. I'm always really interested when we talk about Manson, where you know, individual kind of interest and obsession lies. Like, is it Manson? Is it the murders? Is it the intersection with Hollywood? Is it the role he played in, you know, fulfilling this sense of loss of culture or religion? But, I mean, look on Instagram. Look on my Instagram. Look at me at Halloween. Like, there's so much of this is this obsession with the girls themselves. And I would really like to, like, just chat a little bit about, you know, what is it about these women that are almost have become a different kind of cultural icon and a much more sympathetic and fashionable and kind of whitewashed one. Um, you mentioned John Waters before, and I thought it was really interesting at the end when he's talking about his, like, obsession and his fascination with these Manson girls because he makes this, you know, he's, he's talking about, like, uh, these girls. Like, he's like, I could imagine these girls. Like, you know, what if they were with me? And, and instead of, you know, the same girls, like, they just happened to end up with Charlie Manson, but they could have ended up with John Waters and and gone and made films. And he's talking about it's like I could see these parallels, and it's like I just found it really interesting. I think that like why so many of us identify with these women. It's like so like confused, and it's like anyone if you know if you give me some kind of direction, whether it's John Waters going around and taking acid and making really cool films, or Charlie Manson and running off into the desert and trying to look for the hole. Um, I think that that that's something that we can really identify with. That kind of that desire to be taken on a ride? Susan Atkins was um, in, or was she was involved with, um, yeah, she, she, was a, she used to be a topless dancer that was involved with the process church. And, and Bobby Beausoleil, not one of the do, not one of the girls, obviously, but, but you know, w- w- tried to pursue a kind of film career with uh, working with Kenneth Anger before. So they were all kind of seeking. Very, 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 very 
briefly on Bobby Bresley. Um, it talked about, he, uh, briefly mentioned his soundtrack for Lucifer Rise and end up by doing from prison, which is incredible. If you have a chance to listen to it, it's so, so, so good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's still good looking too. He's still good looking. Do you see his parole trail? I know, he's like a member of the Aryan Brotherhood now too. He's actually the only one that didn't, other than Charles Manson, who's kind of still a really bad guy. Um, I, I am talking about John Waters in that chapter he wrote about Leslie Van Houten in Role Models. I don't know if anyone's read Role Models. He's a very good friends with her, obviously, and has been campaigning for her parole for a lot, many years, unsuccessfully. She recently, her, how many paroles rejected now? 20? 20th parole appeal rejected this year. Um, and what I found so interesting in that chapter, and that's too long, you know, like it's too long, the chapter, but his contention is um, Manson isn't interesting. The people around Manson are the ones that are interesting. And and, and being, being able to explore kind of your depths of empathy enough to relate to Leslie Van Houten and realise that you are her, you know, and I think I find that very, I love going down those paths and I think the, the, the question of how evil or not evil could I be is one maybe we don't ask ourselves enough. Um, I'm, I was totally sold by John Waters' chapter on Leslie Van Houten and I Google her all the time and I'm just so sad that she's not out of prison. And if you just think, I mean, she, she is stuck in that system now. No Californian governor is ever going to be the governor who granted her parole. She's in there now. Um, but I, I honestly, I don't know, you can strike me down if you wish, but I honestly feel, imagine what, Imagine what it was like for her, you know, like she was doused in LSD. You know, she, she, she had already come from a terrible family situation, even if it was middle class. It, she'd, she'd had this kind of forced um, kind of late-term abortion and a falling out with her mother and then tried to go and join some group that would accept her. Yeah, divor the, the divorce. And, um, and then – and I think when she says – She's, she rightly says, and in the recent parole hearing, she said, I, if he had told me to murder a baby, I would have done that. And she's just telling the truth. Um, I mean, I don't know. I just, why can't we kind of see the nuance of that? It seems as though the justice system can't do that. I don't know. I don't know. Does anyone have really strong feelings about... Squeaky from I don't feel so good about. Like... I don't, I, <laughs> I don't know, I just don't connect with Squeaky. Um. <laughs> well, Squeaky and Susan Atkins, to me, were the closest. I mean, Manson is a black hole and, you, you know, he's just your fears and everything that keeps you awake at night. Whereas Leslie Van Houten, I'm the same as you. She's, I mean, it's crazy to say, she's my favourite Manson girl. Like, yeah, I read interviews with her, I watch, <laughs> I was looking at her this morning and sh there was this interview with her, you know, she's in her 60s now or 70s. Like, she looked great. Mm -hmm. I was literally like, oh, my God, Liz Van Houten's still such a babe. She's the only one who was, like, never turned religion. She never tried to excuse herself. She was like, I was just cooked, and I've made the best life for myself in prison. You know, she she's the one who's the mirror to ourselves. Yeah. But I think it's also really interesting, this idea of 
yeah, it's like these girls are these projections of our fears, but also kind of like this sense of loss and obsession that we still see everywhere today. I mean, like listen to a Lana Del Rey album. Like there are so many parallels between this kind of sense of like, <laughs> it's what are you saying? <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> well, I mean, the sense that we're all these girls because we're so drawn to the sense of like confused, lost womanhood. And, you know, you talk about this idea that you don't know what it means to be a young woman anymore. You don't know where you belong. And I mean, there is such like a universal fear and like sense of, like insecurity between so many of us, which ties to old Leslie. Yes. Does anyone else want to talk about Manson Girls? You can write to Leslie. Yeah. John Waters provides her mailing address in role models. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But I mean, there's even the thing is, I feel like I vacillate between relating to Leslie and feeling this deep empathy for her and asking why the justice system system isn't able to explore that or, f or act on it. But I also feel it kind of like, I think there's a Manson side to me too. Like maybe I'm, you know, like I, I don't know. I feel like I'm very drawn to his sureness of himself. Um, I feel like, I don't know. I don't feel stuck in a female view of the situation. Like I think... I remember, like, the first time I rode a motorbike, I was like, oh, my God, that's what it feels like to be a dude. You know, like, it was, like, totally intoxicating. I felt like I had a penis. Um, that's a terribly anti-feminist thing to say, but that's how I felt. And I get a really similar kind of sense of, like, um, like I don't know, confidence by proxy when I listen to Charles Manson talk. I don't know. He's very, He's very convincing. I don't know. misogyny like so deeply ingrained into us that we're like sick I've got a dick that means I'm empowered and I'm strong like because I so relate to that where I'm like fuck yeah I feel so ballsy right now and I'm like what the fuck does that mean like <laughs> yeah but, but it's I think a true experience and it's really conflicting between the part of you that is a feminist and wants to and like see yourself as the empowered and to not have to relate it to something that's really masculine in order to find that but I definitely you know um, have that self-loathing <laughs> ingrained in me too. I know that it's deeply wrong. I do. There's a really great speech um, he gives. You can look up, look it up on YouTube. And this is like in the 70s. Um, and he's he's got this rant about... And he, he just says, I, I don't want to take my time going to work. I've got a motorcycle and a sleeping bag. He's like, and 10 or 15 girls. What the hell would I want to go off and work for? Work for what? Money? I got all the money in the world. I'm the king, man. I run the underworld, guy. I decide who does what and where they do it at. What I am get what? Am I going to run around and act like I'm some teeny bopper somewhere for someone else's money? I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. I deal the cards. And I'm like, fuck. I need to say that in the mirror every morning. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> I don't know. I Maybe this is my inner post-murders Leslie speaking. I just hear that and I'm just like, what are you saying, mate? Like, that is just buzzwords. Yeah, that's like, yeah, it's like editing an article by a uni student. That's all just like triggered, hashtag. <laughs> um, but I mean, this is another thing about him. It's like you can't get a read on who he is, though. Because, yeah. I mean, this is who you, what you see in this. You have this sense of, like, I don't know, 
you you want to feel empowered. You want to feel powerful. You want to yeah, bask in his like reflected glow or whatever. But then you also have this thing. Um, we were chatting before. I was watching an interview with. I can't remember which one of the girls it was. It was one of the early joiners who was talking about the first time she met him. And she went to a party and he was there and he was playing guitar and it was like by the beach in LA and they were smoking weed. And then they ended up having sex that night and she was saying, I never felt so connected to someone. I cried the whole time. I'd never been told I was beautiful before. He like held my face in his hands and he saw me for the first time. And I mean, it's just funny that even... 47 years later, we're still looking at this man and just drawing out what we want from him. Yeah. That, the other thing that he said was he didn't always represent himself as a god. He also, a common thread among his uh, through his statements is that he was either no one, that famous quote where she says, who is Charles Manson? <coughs> and he goes, I'm no one. <laughs> Remember? And you're like, whoa. But then he also has that famous rant where he's like, she says, "What? why are you so appealing? And he goes, because I'm real, man. I'm not a phony. I walk a real line. You know, and it's like this, this and, and that's to me what kind of interests me most, I guess, this idea of, of I don't know, um, there being a hole and him filling it, filling it with, with, with what? Probably the most compelling thing was that he was the real thing and everything else was was fake. This idea of realness. I don't, I don't know. I think he's a thinker, you know. Like I wouldn't want to talk to him, but I think he thinks through life. You know, when he says, I'm free in this cell, I'm freer than anyone in the world because I'm, I'm here in my own mind and, you know. It's interesting if you do watch a bunch of different interviews and read a bunch of different interviews, how he responds to different journalists. Like there is that one where um, she's like, what's your appeal and he, I think he says, like, I'm, I'm wholly original. Like, I don't perform. And he's, like, going crazy. And he's, like, no yeah, and the journalist is, like, you're, you're doing it right now. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, she totally said that. But there's this other – Rolling Stone is obsessed with him. Talk about, like, m this obsession with masculinity. I mean, you could do another podcast about, like, Rolling Stone's obsession with Charles Manson. But their, their most recent one was – he, th this guy had spent a lot of time with him and he spent a lot of time with Star, who was his most recent fiancé, who I think now they've broken up. But um, he is talking to Charles Manson and he says, you know, like, what's the appeal of you? And he leans across the table and he kind of rubs his arm and he's talking about, you know, the orgies at, on Spawn Ranch. And he was like, this is what it felt like. It was like, you just go with it. It's just this. Don't think, just move. And he says, like, in this moment, he's like, that did feel good. And I kind of could see how it was going, like how you can just get drawn into this man. But I mean, even in that moment, like he was appealing to his sense of sex and his like sense of sexual freedom. Yeah. I think the truth is he is a psychopath, um, like in a clinical sense. Um, and that all these prismatic views we have on him, of him are actually just reflections of his ability to sort of morph in line with people's desires. Like he, he was to them what he needed to be in order to control them, which is, which is what psychopaths do um maybe this is the century of the psychopath <laughs> and when when they ask um like why didn't you shoot him and then he's like how could you shoot someone that just says hi and like he stops himself from getting shot by the police by just like being what they can't relate to yeah it's crazy well i mean it's I mean, it's difficult to unpack a psychopath, as you said, because we're all seeing different avenues from him. It's funny, listening to 
this and all the different accounts and reading all these different books and talking to Penny about it. The one thing that keeps coming out, and I don't know if this is his fundamental truth, the only thing maybe that is consistent with him or that he believes, or it's the fundamental truth that he sees in all of us and pulls out every single time, is he's always like, I'm true, I tell it like it is, I'm not a liar. Mm. And I mean, that came out of, he is such a product of the system. Like, again, that's like a whole other conversation about how he was created through the prison system. That he says, you know, I never had a family. I never knew where to belong. I never had a place. And, I mean, he tried to stay in prison. He was getting 10 years for forged checks because he was breaking parole. Like, he was trying to get back in there. But he said, until I went to prison, you know, that was the first time I kind of had like rules to life and it was this idea you didn't lie in prison if you lie you got beat up by a guard if you lie someone found out about you and I mean again it's this idea of like the truth is the religion so even though he was lying to everyone he was tapping into this like universal like obsession that we just want to hear it straight and I mean that's what Trump was saying I was talking to a friend the other day about um we're talking about just ex-boyfriends and when there are times and ex-girlfriends too I'm aware of making this super gendered when you feel bad about yourself and that you often attract people who kind of like tell it like it is and give it to you straight and you kind of feed off this almost like brutal negativity because it feels refreshing. Mm. Um, I mean, I think all religions to some degree are presenting the, tr- the truth. I'm interested in... Um, I mean, his search for the truth was shaped by jail and I really relate to that, the idea that there's, it's very clear what the truth is in jail. Like it's like, you know, and, um, but I also, I'm, I'm kind of more interested in, in the, the things he, he drew on in order to kind of get that message across. Like I'm, I think the, the parallels with Scientology I'm obsessed with because Scientology is also about saying it's about it's about saying the exact thing it's about being able to communicate so powerfully that you can control ashtrays with your voice (laughs) well that's what they believe tom cruise can do operating feet in level eight um (laughs) like the heart of their religion is um is communication not a god um and yeah I, i i i feel like i don't know if this book exists but in in this kind of if if the heart of t- Charles Manson's appeal was 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 telling it like it is and was this is the only guy that's going to tell me the truth and the only guy that knows the truth, I I would love some sort of analysis about how he or what he employed in it to to have that effect on others. Like I I don't know. I don't want to talk too much about Scientology because it makes me very paranoid. Like if this is going to be recorded and stuff, and no one mentioned my full name, um, <laughs> but I can see. Um, I can see how I'm, I'm sort of super interested in between Scientology as a kind of Hollywood religion as, as maybe the religion of the 20th century. That's the century of the celebrity. I mean, Charles Manson understood what celebrity was. As you say, he was, he was the first kind of media, media villain and a villain who understood and was driven by fame and understood how to manipulate the media to that end. Um, and I... I would love someone to have, um, not the nuts, but to write a book about in what ways he used Scientology to get that across and also um, maybe um, um, the aspects of Satanism that he used to get that across. I'm just, I don't know. I guess I'm 
it's, it's this hollow centre with Charles Manson. You can't figure out what the experience was or who he was, but I'm just interested in maybe <laughs> the things you can pin down. Um, yeah. Like, I, the idea of being able to control people with words is <coughs> actually what Scientology does. Um, maybe I need to go back and watch the videos and see if this... If anyone wants to explore this... Scientology do have a YouTube channel in which you can kind of get their advice on how to communicate and control others through your words. And then you could, yeah, anyway, I don't know. Um, win friends and influence people. How he says Dale Carnegie was like a massive influence on him because he read it in jail, and that makes so much there's sense. That form of there's that form of s sales techniques that's actually illegal in Australia. It's that hypnotism. It's it's really famous. I can't. Neuro. Yeah, neuro linguistic. It's actually like I'm pretty sure it's illegal in Australia. <laughs> it's like you. It's a form of no. It's like a form of hypnotism where you like manipulate people into. Yeah, if it's the, to use it for sales, I'm pretty sure it's illegal in Australia. Yeah. But I'm... Yeah, just everything you were saying about, like, them using communication, um, I guess, like, it, it makes sense for that to be, like, a 20th the way that they were communicate Because, like, we had mass literacy for, like, the first time in, like, history. Also, like, you know, mass media was, like just basically invented I guess because like before that it was mainly print media and then like community but uh, no I should definitely not but I mean it's different now like because when you think about social like I always try and think about like uh, someone like that existing in like a social media world and like the pack mentality that occurs even with like the way that Justin Bieber's fans react to him trying to like reject like he recently told them to shut up when he was performing because they were screaming too loud and was like I'm not going to perform if you're not going to, like, listen to me, I'm trying to have a moment with you. And then they, like, got really angry at him. And the same thing happened. They were, like, harassing his girlfriend online. And he was, like, I don't know. I kind of just think about, like, the way that the pack mentality and, like, also how... For some reason, I, like, really associate all of this with, like, America. Like, stuff like that doesn't happen here because, like, Americans are obsessed yeah. with, like, religion having, like, elite, like, a, like, I guess, like, having a profit, I suppose. Which I feel like Australia, for some reason to me, like... I don't know, I just feel like it's not built into our national identity or something to, like, respect an authority figure. Yeah, I think definitely. Whereas, like, I feel like it's, like, a really... Th it's, like, yeah, even with, like, the Kardashians. Like, uh, I feel like people have gotten to, like, a biblical level with their <laughs> dedication to the Kardashians. I'm not even using this mic, sorry. It hasn't happened sooner than now. Like, it's quite remarkable that Trump's been able to do this, but that it hasn't happened on that scale sooner than now. Like, that we haven't seen something. But I think it's because also we didn't have, like, technology like that until now. I read something this week and they were saying um, FDR was the first president to understand the power of the radio. JFK was the first president to understand the power of TV. Obama was the first president to understand the power of the internet and Trump was the first one to utilise the power of Twitter. And I mean, I think that's kind of what we're seeing. Like, now we have Twitter and we have this way to build these false prophets, I suppose. And I mean... Who's going to be the Snapchat president?
for normalization um, by Adam Curtis. Adam? Arthur? Yeah, Adam Curtis. And it talks about how, I can't, maybe it was the Vietnam War, but it like talks about like historically, you know, there was this point in the 20th century where people stopped believing in, that they stopped trusting the government. And it, within like an American context, it, I think it was the Vietnam War, but I could be wrong. So it was like people stopped trusting the government and then essentially presidents stopped um, kind of presenting this idea that they could change the world and presidents became more of like a business manager that just needed to control public perception and people needed to believe that they were happy and that they were living a good life because that's like, as long as they believed that they were living a good life, that's all that mattered. And like Reagan's era, they actually like had a department called like the public perceptions department or something. And yeah, I just feel like this whole campaign, because it was like, I saw this statistic that like, they spoke about Hillary's emails like like four, five more times more than they did actually about actual policy. So just the whole thing just to me seemed like everything was just more about like the public's perception of who was like the honest one and who was like nobody actually cared about policy. Like people aren't even thinking about how it's going to affect, aren't really thinking about how it's going to affect their lives. They were kind of just thinking about this, their perception of like who they'd prefer or something. I was just going to say the interesting thing that um, comes up in parallel between the Trump stuff and this stuff is this idea that people with more, with a better understanding of how we're affected by communication have always been able to use communication against us, like classic propaganda forever and ever and ever. Like, it's interesting to think about how, I don't know, I'm curious about how or whether we're able to sort of use imagination about some of these things to generate self-defense in the face of some of this stuff? I was reading something just to underpin this kind of um, context we're in. And, you know, we're talking about Manson and it's interesting because it's a very similar context. And we're talking about false prophets for the same reason, right? Um, and Washington said when he was critiquing how badly or well the setup was going to go, said um, the alternate dominion, domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge natural to party dissension, um, is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. And I think that's a nice underpinning. And what you're suggesting is that they do so in this media age by understanding media better than we do or are able to anticipate it. And what you're asking is what form of opposition might rise up and I don't know the answer to that. The example that Wendy put forward of that woman who was talking about how he like touched her face and looked at her and like really saw her. And it's like, when you see somebody who's had that experience and is still affected by it, what does that tell you about the things that we need and about 
like somebody who can understand and identify those needs, their capacity to wield power over us because we're all such soppy little shits and we just need to be told that we're loved. I can see you, you special little pumpkin. terrifying to um to think about how Manson was like so into all that um positive psychology stuff and then you know and then thinking about all these uh pickup artists kind of guys with super all of super low self-esteem like looking for these rules and game structures to control people interesting the only Manson went all the time he was in jail before this he kind of stuck to his room and stuck to himself and the only course he did in jail that he did really well at was a course on the power of positive thinking yeah, which I find really interesting. But it's it's funny just like what you were saying about, you know, that single Manson girl wanted to be seen. All the Manson girls, he would spend like individual time with them, even though he would like abuse them and manipulate them, just like The Bachelor. See, I want to say, <laughs> say, like, that made me think. And that made me think. Like, why are we weak or susceptible to this? Yeah, as you say, it's because we need to feel that we're special and we gravitate towards people who are going to solve that problem for us. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I don't... Look, put it on paper, man. Record this. I honestly feel like like Satanism is the only religion that addresses this because do you know what it says? It says, you are both not special at all. The universe is indifferent to you. You're an animal like a cow is or a horse is. But at the same time, you are... A god, the god of the now and the god of you, you know, like whether you are evil or otherwise, you have the total control. So not special, but also 100% responsible. I love it. Let's all join up. Just when you were saying you are a god and you are like, I feel like a lot of that um, has come, like I just always think about like selfie culture a lot. And like I feel like a lot of that, no, <laughs> um, you should write the book. <laughs> but yeah, like a lot of what you're saying has somehow permeated, like just I, yeah, like a self. Um, what is what do you call it? Just the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like uh, that people, the way people like justify a lot of selfie culture as well. And I don't know, for some reason it just felt linked to that. Yeah, and yeah, and self love, and like also what you were saying about. Did you say something about? You didn't say accountability, but you said something responsibility. responsibility. I feel like yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also people like being in control of what, like they're putting themselves out because they don't see themselves reflected in the media or whatever. So. Yeah. Yeah. Things that existing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that comes back into it as well, though, because it's like the way that regular people like uh, broadcast their lives, like are living in like the now, and that they're constantly like broadcasting their lives. And. Yeah, don't they do? There's another. I keep on bringing up this Adam Curtis, but there's another documentary. I can't remember the name where he talks about um, Sigmund Freud's nephew. Who, yeah, Century of the Self, where he moves to New York and like invents PR essentially and like transferred to the Western society from a needs based society to a wants based society. And I feel like a lot of that comes down to it because, like, in the 60s, there's all these people, but also it's because 
for the first time, people are like thinking, well, not for the first time, but people are really thinking about, you know, they want to be famous, they want to be appreciated for all these like talents rather than just like, I've got to get a job and feed my family and like, you know, things like t you need to survive. It became like, well, I need to fulfill my wants in order to survive. And I feel like we're living in like the most intense form of that now with like, I don't know, I just, with juices and all of the, the self love kind of culture that we have where it's all about you satisfying these wants. Yeah, and also like work. You're supposed to find a job that's like creatively, uh, you know, and then like, oh yeah, that's like us that are sitting here. It's like creatively, um, you know, responsive to what you believe in and has a good culture and the hours suit your needs and this and that. And it's like, that's a pretty hard little speck to find. But also it means you end up working like all the time. Like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I feel like this has gone into all these other areas. It's this idea of this curdled utopia. Like those girls went to Spawn Ranch because they wanted to find the meaning. And we're trying to find the meaning in our underpaying creative jobs. <laughs> and by... You guys, the man is Charles Manson. <laughs> Capitalism is Charles Manson. I feel like um, a lot of like responsibility is like a big factor here yes. across yes. all of this. Like yeah. the the people. Yeah, it's it's like the Satan. You know, t if you're going to be evil, take responsibility for it. like and yeah, taking yeah. responsibility for that evil. I think people taking responsibility is attractive because we all are like, you know, like, I don't know, like, like who's the media? Who's responsible? Yeah. Or even like, or think about torture and mass murders, you know, done by the government and they're just like, <laughs> we didn't realise there was civilian casualties, you know, and it's like, or if you took responsibility for it. For shooting a young kid that doesn't have a gun, you know, all this stuff. It's like responsibility's been taken away. Um, I feel like in response to what Julia said and what you've said about... Oh, that's weird. Okay. Um, that this whole... I guess I'm asking if you're putting forward a kind of responsibility at an individual level as being a solution to this kind of search for gods or search for meaning or following of Trump or Manson. Um, maybe the only defence, you've asked for a defence, maybe the only defence is to notice when we're being appealed to at the ego level, you know, like, and I, and I just, or when that need for approval is kind of driving us or a need to belong to something bigger is driving us. You know, when we, when we outsource our sense of personal responsibility to a larger group, maybe, maybe, the, maybe we're heading from, maybe that's our responsibility. And I think it strikes me that the way that um, Scientology um, asks or enables you to control people through language is very much about making the communication about them that's like central to Scientology so they would say never send never send an email <coughs> unless it contains an action for the other person so don't have any interaction that has any stakes 
that doesn't contain an action for the other person. So never start an interaction or write an email if you just want to talk about how you feel or how they feel. And if you think about it, think about how you read email. All you do is you just scan it for what the fuck do I have to do? What day? I don't even give a shit. You know, it, we, we, we interpret and hear all communication spoken and written through that lens of how is this about me? You know, and maybe we just have to be conscious of that kind of meanness and maybe fighting it, you know? I don't know. Just one thing on that. There's, um, I think the way you become defensive to things like this is kind of understanding and recognising when they're happening. So when you talk about that idea of being, like, controlling people through language by managing, like, by essentially um, speaking to them in ways that give them ways to respond because it makes them feel comfortable and whatever, like, that's really great... But we all need to kind of, it's like our defense will be when we recognize that we have those needs. It's like our, de it's kind of like the thing with the Trump situation. Like the problem with the world is not Donald Trump. The problem with the world is illustrated to us through the pustule that just came out of us, which is yeah. Donald Trump. And like once we sort of start understand, yeah. <laughs> but once you recognize like once you start seeing the things that caused the Donald Trumpness and once you start seeing what appealed to people like this guy was saying the other day that when he was in America in July he met 50-50 Trump supporters and Clinton supporters but the difference was that the Trump people were fucking passionate and then when it came down to action on a day when you don't have to compulsory there's no compulsory voting it's going to be the people who are passionate it's like we have to look at these things and start understanding what our needs are, what our desires are, what our passions are, what make us active, what make us, like, do nothing, and just start working kind of with a better understanding of what the fuck we are, mm. I think is... Samson, like, you're talking about how he's all about, like, being real and being straight, and it's like, I feel like we're so often drawn to that because of that. It's like, and it comes back to taking responsibility for who you, what your actions, and it's like to be honest about what you want and to take responsibility for what it is that you need, it's so appealing in someone. <laughs> and I think for a lot of people so appealing too about Trump was that he was like, I'm not a politician, I'm not going to lie, I'm not full of bullshit like these, all these other people. Yeah. And people want that, which is... Which is the same as Samson. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read the news or gone on social media for 48 hours. I just, and that was my taking responsibility, like going, I could have been like, I'm going to read every little thing I can and just, but it was just like, like that was the only way I could get control was just to like not connect with it, which feels really good. <laughs> I feel really good because I haven't read anything. I haven't seen anything. So I'm just like, it's a sunny day. Meanwhile, people are, I don't fucking know, but until I... And I was like, I'll go to the cafe and read the paper. Oh, no, I won't because I'm not doing that anymore. And it's just like, if you don't, I don't know, I feel like I'm taking responsibility in m for my personal way. Which, for my mental health. Which I had, pre that Trump getting in, I was digesting full news articles before sleep and stuff every night. of ourselves, what's evil about ourselves, what's intolerant about ourselves, so much of, so much, we don't spend any time doing that. That, And I reckon that's partly what 
makes me magnetically obsessed when I consider a, an evil force like Manson and the, the parts of it I'm interested in are how am I like Leslie? You know, why don't we think through the parts of us that are base and driven by these sorts of, you know, because then we would understand one another better. You know, maybe we have to stop being on this kind of, yeah, yeah, because it ain't. And the thing is we're way worse than we think and we're way more in the moment than we think we are. Like there's there's no through line. We're just we're just chaotic beings that are just as bad as Charles Manson and just as good as someone else. <laughs> well, on that note, um, well, it's after twelve now, so we should start thinking about wrapping up. But I mean, I feel like Pen, you kind of just nailed it. Like we started this conversation being like, why are we still so obsessed with Charles Manson? And I mean, it's because firstly he's a complete metaphor for the world right now, but I mean, it's also like it's hard to look at yourself and examine your own evil, but it's a lot easier to sit around with a bunch of people in a park and discuss the evil of a man 50 years ago and, you know, draw your own parallels. Um, so we're going to start wrapping up. Does anyone else have something that they want to add or, like, a question they want to throw out to the group? Or When's the next meet? It's in... Oh, that's a good idea. It's in a month. I don't have the date written down, but I will... Oh, French, do you know where the next one is? Um... I think the next one, Changing Direction, is going to be about Gilmore Girls, <laughs> which I feel like people will be interested in. Just, I was kind of floating the idea of maybe doing the third one about Kenneth Anger, because I feel like, I feel like <laughs> we can kind of... Could we show Lucifer Rising? I mean, I would... I don't know. Just bring an iPad, pass it around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure we could do something like that. I mean, also, if we could share clips on Facebook pages and stuff. Um, because at first I was like, maybe this is too dark. But I feel like maybe in 2016 we need a bit of darkness. Let's go dark. I think people want it. Okay, that's the Gilmore Girls one, not the Lucifer Rising one. Don't get them confused. Sorry to ask a technologically illiterate question, but if I post links to the various articles I've mentioned and stuff in, in the event, will that, like, disappear after tomorrow? Like, when the event's over? I don't really understand how to... But then all the Gilmore Girls people will be like, why is there a post about Satan? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you might start to post them next time. I'll post them today. I've been making a few notes of stuff we've mentioned, but like we've mentioned heaps of really good documentaries, really good articles we've read this week, um, supporting stuff. Like chuck it all on the Facebook page. Oh. Let's like keep the convo going, guys. All right. Well, thank you, so much. Thank you for thank being you the first you. ones. Well done. Um, yeah, this was exactly what I wanted it to be. And you guys are all perfection. All right.